I cast across and I got a bump and I saw a flash. So I knew something was there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the adrenaline started kicking in. So I made another very similar cast, let it sink a little bit deeper. And then this time I got smashed. Smashed so hard that this fish just shot upstream jumping. Um, and what it did is it exposed its size and that just blew my mind. So I whooped with joy and all the kids came running down to the bank to watch. And they're all hollering every time it jumped, which is really exciting. Fly fishing has become a totally subjective pursuit. It is what you want it to be. And no one does this better than today's guest, Platon Trakoshis. We talked to him about growing up in Zimbabwe, fly fishing for robusta, the lulabug, and finding treasures in bridal shops. I'm your host, Gordon van der Spey. Don't panic, this is The Feather Mechanic. Where did fly fishing start for you? Well, I... I grew up in Zimbabwe, so, and, you know, in the sort of low felt and, well, we, not highlands, but the middle felt, I don't know what you call it. <laughs> and my father was a very avid fisherman. Um, mm -hmm. he, he used to have a boat. He used to go on amazing trips to a lot of the big lakes around where we lived in Gweru, that was in the center of the country. So I grew up fishing all the time, but a lot of it was dampened during the war in Zimbabwe, you know, suddenly there was this like guerrilla war going on and we couldn't fish as much as we could. And the boat got sold and the camping gear went rusty in the corner of the, of the shed. And so it was very much local trips and mainly fishing for tilapia and it was bait okay. fishing, which was quite interesting. But then the bass scene started picking up in Zimbabwe. I mean, as a child, I was fascinated by bass because it was different, I guess. Um, and tilapia was my, you know, was my staple growing up. And then the bass the fishing thing kicked in, started fishing with lures and that kind of thing. And then after university, I went back to Zimbabwe and I started working for a computer firm. And yes. they uh, had a, there was a conference at Troutbeck in the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe. Anyone from okay. Zim will know it. It's, you know, it was iconic in its way. And I went along to this conference, and of course, conferences have that typical thing where in the afternoons they have activities, and the, you know the choices were volleyball and all of that kind of stuff, and golf. And I was not a golfer, but right in front of the of the hotel is a big lake with trout yeah. in it, okay. and they had trout facilities and they had rowboats. So I went and I looked at the fly fishing gear, which was completely foreign to me. Mm -hmm. and thought, I'm going to give this a go. So I had no idea. There was no one there to tell me what to do. I took the rod. It was like the line fascinated me, and the, there was like a probably a tippet of about, I don't know, five feet on it. It was probably 15 pound. Okay. But there were a few flies that you could buy, and I went out into the middle of the lake, and there was like little dimples on the water. I had no idea what they were. I thought they were frogs or something like that. And put on, I think it was a walker's killer and started fishing and started hammering trout left, right and center. And that feeling of, I don't know, there's something about a fly rod where you, you feel the fish more, you know, you're holding the line. So you feel the pull. It's a different feeling. Yeah. And I was completely hooked. I mean, this was just like the best thing for me. You know, I remember one particular day, I mean, it was very like lock style fishing. I mean, not in, when I say lock style, I don't mean in boats, but it was like yeah. cold, windy, barren. And I went past a Scottish guy, funnily enough, who was fishing something tiny. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like 
it's unbelievable that the fish are eating that. <laughs> and I went to the inlet, and there were a whole lot of fish there, and I, I actually couldn't even cast. I remember that my my back cast, you know, I would cast into the water and then lift. So it was more like a lift and drop into the water. Yeah. Caught my quota of eight fish and then walked back, and the Scottish guy was quite blown away, especially from a novice like me. Yeah. And that's where fly fishing for trout started. Um, and one of the things we did a lot of in Zimbabwe was go fish for bass in certain places. There was some great bass fishing. And I met a guy staying in an adjacent cottage. He'd been hammering these like big bass. When I say big, I'm talking, you know, like six, seven pound bass on poppers, fly poppers. Okay. And I okay. was like, this is insane. And he showed me one. And then, of course, I went looking for bass poppers and then started fishing for bass. Um, on a fly rod, and that was unbelievable. I mean, surface fishing for big bass, you know, five pounds and up, was quite mind blowing, and that's kicked off a very strong bass fishing, well, fly fishing for bass element for me. Fly fishing started, for bass is cool though. It's flipping awesome. It's totally awesome. But it's you know when I started fly fishing and years ago, I mean, obviously there was little information around. There was no internet. You know, I had as a child, I had a my mother, well, my parents had a big set of Encyclopedia Britannica, which had a fishing section and it had, you know, it had bass in it <laughs> and it had smallmouth bass. And I was like, what is this smallmouth bass? And it was fasc it fascinated me. But then, you know, we started branching out into other areas. Um, I started fishing for tilapia on fly. And we also had another fish, which we used to call them Robbies. It's a robustus, uh -huh. but it's not actually the same as the Nemwe that you get on the on the Zambezi. It's a, I mean, I need to do some research on this and it's something that I actually intend on doing. Okay. So a Nemboya basically is the love child of a largemouth bass and a tilapia. I would, I would say, am I right? Yeah, it's similar to that. I mean, it's a different species. It's Ceracromus, um, Ceranochromus, sorry. Um, and it is. It's basically a tilapia with a big mouth. So it's yeah. an ambush predator, and it will ambush a fly, like a, a tigerfish fly even, quite readily. Yeah. you just got to fish in the right spots, you know, fish close to the bank, fish into the reeds, fish into the trees. And they yeah. pull, and they're beautiful. And, you know, that, that, it's a big thing. When I go tiger fishing on the Zambezi, I'm always trying to fish for bream. It's very difficult to drag people <laughs> away from the tigerfish. <laughs> But, you know, we, I, I try. So we do catch some. And what was introduced, so that you have that Nembwe, which is um, Ceronochromus robustus. And there are yeah. other bream species, the thin mars, purple face, which I've caught a few of. But in the dams, I mean, they're everywhere, is another Ceronochromus version, which we called Robbie's. And it was very big in the bass fishing scene. It was actually part of the... You know, the Bassmaster classics that they had there, the Robustus had a place and you got points for it. Mm -hmm. And all our dams seem to have them and they're vicious. I mean, they'll take out most of the population of fish in the, in the system. But they were fantastic to catch. I mean, and they loved flies. I mean, my brother actually used to fish for them with a fly, but with a spinning rod. And he used what was called a bubble float, which is basically a transparent float with a little plug in it. And you'd fill it half with water and you could cast yes. it out. And retrieve it slowly, and he started hammering the Nembwe on that, or the Robbies oh, on that. Oh, yeah. And so then I took my fly rod along, and it used to be like my highlight of my trips back to Zimbabwe was taking my brother's boat out and going and catching bass and Nembwe on fly. So, yeah, that's where that passion started. Why did you come to South Africa? 
I actually came in 1991 because it was when Mandela was being released. I was actually yes. a member of the ANC, which is quite cool, funny, I think. Um, at university, I joined in, when I was at university in Canterbury and picketed uh -huh. Shell a few times. And I was living in Zim, and obviously, I was at the time, I was very pro Mugabe. You know, he was making a lot of sense, and he was a very well-educated man. Uh -huh. And for the first 10 years in Zim, it was incredible. I mean, Zimbabwe was like one of the best places to live. Uh -huh. um, it was open to the world, and it was incredible. But, you know, um, I'd been working in Harare for a couple of years, and I just wanted to move to another place um, and just experience the world a bit. And Mandela was, it was announced that Mandela was being released, so I basically came over, got a job. Mm -hmm. I was quite lucky. You know, having a computer science degree it was easy to get here. Mm -hmm. And got a job and, you know, experienced the whole change, um, which was fascinating and amazing. And just, yeah, it was, it was quite an experience to be here during that change and really enjoyed it. And then I got into the film industry and that actually took me away from fishing quite a lot. But yeah, it was, that's why I came and then I stayed and never went back. Okay. And then obviously Zim fell apart and I, you know, decided not to go back and slowly over the years, everyone in my family left so now i don't really go back that often anymore it's kind of sad it's very sad it's sad but it, you know at the same time you know i mean it's sad how it ended up but at the, at the time it wasn't bad at all the other thing you're doing which or the, the other thing that you've been doing for a while actually that sort of really intrigues me is the carp fishing on the berg river tell us more about that Oh, okay, I'm going to just jump back a little bit because, you know, I mean, talking about alternative species, people fish for trout mainly. I mean, you'll find most people fish for trout. And mm -hmm. on the Cape Streams, you've got a lot of smallmouth bass, but small ones. And we yeah. used to catch them. And then I started like, you know, I was very intrigued by smallmouth bass. When I was a kid, I remember watching it. Was, I don't know what it was. It was a documentary on the Rockies or I don't know, somewhere in America. And in Zim, we never had clear flowing streams they were always muddy sort of stagnant streams and i was fascinated by clear running water and waterfalls and there was this little clip of this guy who was on the edge of the river and he had a spinning rod he says i'm going to put on a little spoon it was a little i remember it clearly a little red spoon and he cast it out and caught the smallmouth bass in this really fast water and that blew my mind mm -hmm. so one of the things i don't know if you remember but before the berg river dam was built there was a place called Judale. I remember um, it. Bells, yeah. Bells had a, a had a fly fishing academy there or something. Yeah, I think they did. I never went to that. Um, I was still a closet fly fisherman at the time. Um, <laughs> but we used to, like, I used to fish obviously for trout in 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 the stream. So we used to fish in winter in the in the in the in the, in the dams. But yeah. I started fishing in the streams there and started catching some big smallmouth bass. So the alternative species thing, you know, grew quite big for me. And then I started actually focusing on smallmouth bass and, you know, fished the breeder a lot and stuff like that. So I wasn't, you know, averse to fishing for trout. But mm -hmm. carp didn't make that list for me, to be honest. <laughs> I'd caught yeah. a few, you know, like when you went away to a farm dam and, you know, there were carps like slurping on the surface. I'd try and catch them. Yeah. And I caught a couple at full flay and stuff like that. But it was never a big thing. Mm -hmm. And I used to actually live in observatory and used to go for walks along the Leesbeck, which is the filthy river, yeah. you know, and see the carp in there. And they were huge and it was fascinating. And carp fishing had just started taking off. But then I moved to Paal 
um, which was quite a big jump for me, somewhere I never thought I'd ever live. And <laughs> the Berg River had gone through a bit of a change because in the old days, the Berg River used to, the, the top section of the Berg River used to like run dry. Well, not dry, mm -hmm. but it used to turn into a trickle. And they used yeah. to supplement the river with water from Teovartis Cliff. So if you went okay. up the river, it suddenly you come to this point where there was this huge pipe just blasting water out into the riverbed and making an instant river. Okay. Part of the problem was is that the water was dirty. So mm -hmm. the dry fly fishing for trout went off. Mm -hmm. And that's when I'd focus more on bass because, you know, I started nymphing more and catching some big trout, but then catching bass as well. But the water was dirty. And I think the Berg River was, you know, the carp in the lower Berg River were actually aided by this because you couldn't see them. Mm -hmm. But I moved to Paul, and I live about, I don't know, 400 meters from the Berg River itself. Mm -hmm. My wife sort of used that as a tool to get me to move out here. Closer, closer to the Cape Streams. <laughs> I was going, that is the last reason to move out, move out of Cape Town and move to Paul, but let's go. It did open up opportunities, though. And my buddy, Andre van Weg, had started fishing for carp in the Liesbeck. And... I looked at it with disdain. I thought, those fish stink, and I know that river. It's got, you know, you'll find tons of condoms, bras, panties, needles, and syringes. It's all there. Yeah. And I avoided it. My whole policy was, you know, pristine, beautiful places to fish in. But when I moved to Pile and I started walking along the Berg River, now a clear-running river, I was blown away by these carp that were like the size of my leg, and they were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I also hooked up with uh, Andre. I, I told Andre about it. I said, look, you should see these carp in this river. And he was keen to come out. And Leonard Fleming, I think, had been fishing it as well. And mm -hmm. he's a big carp fisherman. I mean, it's one of those passion fish. Yep. And so we started fishing for carp in the Berg River. And, you know, it was tricky. They're not easy fish. It's probably, I, I, I reckon it's like one of the hardest fish to catch around. Not carp in general. I fished for them in other places like on the Orange and in dams and lakes. But the Berg River carp are particularly finickety. And what I also loved about them is you'd be fishing for them in moving water. So that made it even more challenging. And another thing too is a lot of the carp I'd caught in dams and things like that were big-bellied, slow, heavy fish. Yeah. Whereas the carp in the Berg River aren't. They're sleek. And when you hook one, they really take off and they use the current and you see your backing. I've seen my backing on carp more than I've seen on any other fish, to be honest. And yeah, it became an obsession. It was trying to work these fish out and it became a weekly thing. You know, every weekend, you know, Andre, Andre and I fished a lot on the Berg and we'd come out and obviously started exploring new, new waters, new areas. And it was urban fishing. You know, you came across your boot and you know, um, <laughs> trolley fishing trolleys. Fishing trolleys are a big one. They were always like there's a, a trolley down from the bridge. You know, yeah. you know the sports field at the boys' high sports fields. Yeah, they, they, that bridge near there. If you look down, there's a trolley right there. Conk. Well, it's fascinating what's in there. You know, I mean, they're good. It's good structure for the smallmouth bass in there, but for the carp, they always get in the way. And you know, we fish with really thin tippets, but you know, th between three X and four X. Okay. So, you know, they, you, you've got to be careful. You've got to, it's, del, it's relatively delicate. And, you know, there are many days of blanking, but it's not too bad for me because, you know, it's, it's, it's a stone throw away from home. It's right there. 
And nowadays I walk my dog there like most mornings. And when I see that the fish are on or feeding hard, you know, I'll go and pop down in the afternoon and catch one. And that would, you know, really like satisfy me. What's they're incredible, the way? incredible fish. They're incredible fish, actually. They're very intelligent. And the challenge of the Berg River fish is, I think, what keeps me coming back. So you said something quite important there. You said you fished for carp in many places, but the Berg River fish are particularly challenging. And, yeah. and that's so true. You know, carp, carp are not always a difficult fish, but in certain instances, they can be as difficult as permit. I mean, I've tried to fish for those Berg River carp. I've, okay, I've only gone once, and it was impossible. It was just like those fish just spooked. I, yeah. I just, it, it, especially in still in the stiller stuff. I've never seen fish that finicky. Not even trout. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. There's, there's, you know, you hear people talking about genetics and fish, and that they get become educated to certain thing. I mean. When I first started fishing the berg here, there weren't a lot of people fishing for carp. And I'm talking just generally. But mm-hmm. when lockdown kicked in, it was quite incredible how many people were fishing for carp for food. I mean, even today, you go mm-hmm. down to the river at the right time and there's guys sitting there and they're pulling out quite a few fish. And there are a lot of guys jigging for them. So they basically have a sinker with treble hooks. They cast it out, mm-hmm. make one hell of a plop, and then jig for them because sometimes they swim in schools and they'll pull fish out and these guys are fishing for food they're hungry they don't have work mm-hmm. but i think the fish have become educated in some way when they 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 hear the plop of your fly if it's too heavy and you know makes too much of a plop they scatter so the big trick is is finding a fish that doesn't see you getting a fly right in front of it and then you'll be lucky if you get an eat um other places where I fish for them, even on the orange, you know, you cast to a carp and they'll swim over a meter and pick up a fly that you've thrown to them. Or, you know, mm-hmm. in some of the ponds that we fish, you throw a dragonfly nymph and they'll swim over. They'll chase it even. Mm-hmm. And you hear about that in the States, you know, like Lake Michigan and in the Great Lakes, people are fishing with streamers. And that happens in other places. I mean, I remember once fishing for smallmouth bass at um, a big lake down the road from us here, which has got a lot of carp in it, and we're fishing for smallmouth bass with clausaminas, and Andre nailed something that I thought was a vitfus, but it yeah. turned out to be a carp that nailed, you know, a clausamina. So I think they're more opportunistic. I'm, I'm not quite sure. The, the burger of a carp are just fussy, and people don't believe me often, you know, people who fish for them on the Vaal and places like that. But, you know, come here and try it out. You'll, you'll learn Dude, the hard way. you have <laughs> no idea. Well, you do. But, like, the Berg River Cop, if you can consistently catch Berg River Cop on a fly rod, then yeah. you can fish. It's as simple as that. Then you, yeah. then you are a fishing ninja. Look, I think the thing about the Berg River Carp, if you've got, it's, it's, it's a quiet affair and it's a slow affair. If you want fast fishing, you know, what a lot of people love doing is just standing on a bank and casting flies out, not thinking too much and waiting for a tug. That'll never happen. I mean, it can mm-hmm. happen. It has happened. But it's not that, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't happen often. Well, it doesn't, it's very rare that that would happen. But it mm-hmm. has happened. So you can't say never. But it is. It's about being very, very stealthy, finding a feeding fish and putting the fly in front of it without it knowing that you're there. That's the hardest part. So there are a lot of elements in there. It's about delicate casting. It's about accurate casting. Because I like catching them in the flowing water, you know, they're often, you've got to 
time it right so you cast your fly way ahead, get the drift right, get it to drop, and then sit around in front of a carp's nose for long enough for them to eat it. So it's, it is challenging. But I th- that's the draw. You know, that is the challenge. And what's also great is that they're really big fish. And when you do hook one, they take off. And mm-hmm. it's just such a pleasure. Do you ever catch carp in the riffles there? Uh, in that faster stuff? Like, you know. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we do. In the riffles, we we see them. They sit. Uh, it amazes me how they sit behind a rock and they just eat away. And if you can get a fly to fall into that little eddy that they're feeding in and they eat it, I mean, that's just incredible. Sometimes they shoot upstream and then realize they're not going to get anywhere, turn around and go downstream. And you've got to run down with them, you know, like you do for <laughs> salmon. It's like quite chaotic and quite funny. And we do lose fish. I've lost some incredibly big fish. Yeah. But when you do land one, I mean, the prize is just, it's priceless. And that's are what we catch- go back for. Are you catching them more in, in stiller sections? You are both, hey? I mean, look, a lot of people, your best option is to find a carp feeding. You know how they do? They're like basically muddying in the water with their heads yep. down. In, in the quieter sections or in the back eddies, they're much easier. But what often happens is, you know, you see them feeding in the moving water, like, you know, like a pool of, a, a pot of them, four or five fish, and they're mm-hmm. sitting there with their heads down and eating something. We still haven't worked out what they're trying to eat. But they're shuffling through the mud. You can see the mud, so often they give themselves away in that way. And then it's about just getting the fly in front of them. That is the key. Um, and knowing which fish are feeding. You know, I've seen a lot of guys, you know, people phone me all the time and say, where can we fish? I tell them I'm not hiding any spots. But, you know, you, carp also have this tendency to, like, hang around and sun themselves mm-hmm. in the surface. And you can see them. So you think, I'm going to catch those ones. And they're hard to catch those fish because they're not feeding. Well, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you can't. If you can drop, like, a slow sinking Zulu or something like that, Mm-hmm. They'll often, often suck it in, you know. A, a mistake we often make is we see those fish that are sort of sitting there and you think, I'm going to give it a go. And we cast our heavy weighted flies that we've designed to like sink in the current and get to the bottom. And it goes past their nose a bit too fast and they try and suck it up, but the nymph moves a bit too fast and it's too heavy. And then you see them like sucking away and the nymph keeps dropping and then you've lost the fish because they won't chase it to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about working out which fish are good. And then you get those fish that are cruising around. And I've seen people spend hours casting in front of those cruising fish, hoping those fish are going to turn and eat their fly. And they just don't do that in the berg. You know? So, yeah, fishing in riffles, fast water is amazing. You know? I mean, there are times where I wish they would eat a bit more regularly and chase a fly down, but you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, there are areas where they do get fed, like people catch them on bread flies and because there's a lot of um, estates along, along the river and yeah. those fish have been fed and you'll get guys catching quite a few with like bread flies and things like that. But that's, that's, that's a different thing. No, nah, that's not cool. That's I mean, it is cool. I've done it, but you know, that's just one uh, way of but, doing it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I don't know, chumming, bringing the fish up, putting it there. It, it's a little bit too easy, you know. It if you too, catch, it is too easy. But if you want to pull on a day that you don't feel like missioning, it works. I mean, I've never done that in the berg, but in other places I have. You know, like on on dams and things like that, especially when the kids are around, you want them to catch something. It's a great way yeah. to do it. But no, no, no that's not what it's about. The Burger of a Carp are about finesse and agility and slow. It's all slow until you hook something. 
So those cops shoot off for two reasons. Either you spook them and then they really yep. disappear or when you hook one and then they really take off. And that's, that's the joy and the pleasure. Yes, man. So I, yeah, I think it's, it, it's a very challenging fishery. I mean, I know, look, quite a few of the guys, you know, in our, in our feathers and flora group, the blog group for the mission, you know, a lot of those guys are saltwater fishermen who like fishing for permit and, you know, sight fishing for bonefish and that kind of thing. I mean, bonefish are obviously quite easy. But when they come to the berg, it really gets them excited because it is that it's a visual type of fishing. You're seeing fish, is moving water. You've got so many elements to take into consideration. And when you get it right, the reward's huge. You know, it's, it's, it really is. And in terms of patterns, what, what, what well, patterns, it, is, I don't know, hey, I mean, it's, People catch them on different things. You know, we've caught them on, on various flies. We're ca- like nymphs are usually the thing. And Leonard has quite a few like Zulu orientated patterns um, that he uses. And that's sort of his go-to. Uh, one of the things I noticed is, you know, because Andre and I always used to question, what are these fish feeding on? They're shuffling around in the sand because the berg used to have a lot of sand in it. So it's like very clear. You know, you're talking about a meter of water, crystal clear with sand. And these fish would shuffle along in that sand and would be looking for something, obviously feeding on something. And, you know, one of my fascinations has always been dragonfly nymphs. Even as a child, I used to collect them and stuff like that. They they used to burrow. I remember as a kid as well. Yeah. used to dig them out of the sand in the river. Yeah. Well, you can see their tracks. If you find, I mean, you often see it on rivers where there's like a little sandy, you know, um, sandbar. You'll see these funny little tracks in in the thing. And, you know, I knew those were dragonfly nymphs usually the gomphidia type uh-huh. and then you get the other one which i can never pronounce the lullaby or whatever you say it uh lullaby lullaby is that how you say it okay yeah, i you're think the, so i'm not an entomologist but uh, yeah but you're the, you're a good fly tie and you know your stuff <laughs> <laughs> well that was it so i was basically you know saying maybe that's what they're feeding on so i started developing a pattern a dragonfly nymph that would be like a gomphidia and the lilipidia or whatever it's called. And, you know, I thought, okay, we need a fast sinking pattern that goes straight to the bottom and doesn't flatten in the current. Because, you know, a lot of the patterns you get these days are still water patterns. And I wanted something that, you know, where the body stood out because they are a robust insect. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was always looking for the right material. And I tried a few versions with rabbit fur. Uh-huh. But, you know, rabbit fur, when it's clumps up, it's not ideal in current if you're trying to make it, you know, stand out. It's, uh-huh. It flattens in the water. And when I was in Cyprus the one year, my uncle, he, he has a problem with wild hares in his small holding. Yeah. So he shoots them. <laughs> and he has the pelts. And I was looking at some of the pelts. He's got this little shack on his small holding. And I was looking at these pelts. They had the most amazing guard hairs. And the hair was stiffer. It was rabbit fur, well, hair fur, but it had all these beautiful guard hairs and things. So I, he gave me a few patches, and I brought them back and tied this pattern, which I started using on the berg. In fact, it was Andre who pulled, he saw one sitting there. Um, it's a very, well, quite a simple pattern. It's got um, bead chain eyes and, you know, rubber legs and this hair's fur, which stands out and gives you that sort of coffin-shaped or robust body. And mm-hmm. that body would stay, you know, even in the faster water, it would hold. And we and Andre pulled one out of my box one day and caught a carp on it. And I was like, hmm, they do work. 
So I developed this pattern and, you know, started catching carp quite regularly on it. And it's become quite a standard pattern for me. I mean, that's what I use mostly. But every now and then, you know, I'll switch to other things that work better. Squirmy wormies were very, very, very good for a while. But mm-hmm. I think those fish just got educated. Like a red squirmy wormy was killer pattern for us at one point. But I think mm-hmm. the fish got educated and started getting spooked because that happens often. You, know, you get your fly in front of a carp and it spooks and you wonder, is it your tippet? Is there flash in the fly? You know, you start going down the list of why it's spooked. I still don't know why they spook, but there are days where they spook, the other days when they eat. But this pattern for me is is my go-to. And, you know, I tie a lot of them. And a lot of friends use them. And it's really worked for me. So, yeah, that's the main thing we use. And then, obviously, small nymphs, black nymphs, squirmy wormies. I mean, look, you can try different things. I've tried crabs. They don't seem to be interested, which is weird. Uh-huh. And that's that's my go-to pattern. It's called the lalubug, which is a bit of a weird name. Um, but yeah. uh, I think it links in nicely with labellidae, lalubug. Yeah, that's part of it. But it actually came about when I was in Cyprus, and I'd been asked to go and do a tying demonstration for the the Cyprus Angling Association, which my nephew was a uh, a member and his best friend was the uh, president and i got special permission to go and fish a lake there that's got some huge carp in it um i had to get permission through the the fisheries department and i got escorted by the president (laughs) of this fishing club and a representative (laughs) of the water resources unit of cyprus so the pressure was on And we went around the dam looking for carp, and it was really difficult. I had a lalubug on. And then I started seeing tilapia, and I hooked a few, and it was amazing. It was these beautiful blue Israeli tilapia, and it was a hell of a lot of fun. And that word got out amongst the Cyprus fishing community. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of these guys are bass fishermen. So I tied a clouser minnow because they were very interested, and there was a handful of of trout fishermen, well, fly fishermen there who wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. So I did a bit of casting demos and taught a few guys. And then I was doing the demo, tying a clouser in a, and then one of the guys said, tie that fly that you caught the tilapia on, which is this <laughs> lalu, well, it wasn't called the lalu bug at the time. So it was a dragonfly nymph. And I said to them, well, you all know what dragonfly nymphs are. And they all looked at me like, no, we don't know what dragonflies are. We know what flies around, but we don't know what the nymphs are. Yep. So I was trying to explain it to them. I showed them the pattern. And while I was tying, my son, my oldest son, who's an insect nut uh-huh. and, and a frog nut, was digging around in the mud. And I remember I was like shouting, saying, Stavro, get out of the mud. And he's going, I'm not in the mud. You are in the mud. It was the whole thing. And everyone was laughing. <laughs> and while I was explaining this dragonfly nymph to them, my son came and plopped two dragonflies in front of me onto my tying table. I said, that's what a dragonfly nymph looks like. Okay, so let's talk about the JDTs. Tell me a bit more about your experiences on the JDTs. Well, I was lucky. I mean, obviously, it was a bit of a fabled river because you could never get there. It was always about permission and trying to get up there. And then the CPS managed to get some access, and they run this lottery where every year, I think it's around this time of the year in winter, they put a lottery out and you, you know, you enter, you pay a hundred rand and you enter into the lottery. And the one year I won and I was very excited and I went up with my mate, Andre, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Dre is also like an all-round fisherman. He fishes for anything like I do. And we went up the river and we hiked up. We were both newbies to it, blown away by the, ro- the just the river is unbelievable. Um, not only the water itself being crystal clear, but there's a lot of waterfalls and these gigantic rocks, and it's just fascinating. And there are beautiful trout in there, and we started, you know, we were quite successful. I remember the first, we got up there, I wasn't feeling that well, I got a migraine, and then Andre went downstream and fished up and caught some beautiful fish. And we had an incredible time. We went up above the cave, which a lot of people said weren't a lot of fish, and we just started catching fish in every pool and every run. And both of us being very into photography, um, we started filming each other because the JDTs is pretty skinny. It's not a place where you can fish two abreast. Mm-hmm. So we were fishing one at a time and we started filming each other. And then I started thinking, hey, let's make a video, you know, for ourselves. It wasn't for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And we made a video. Andre filmed me. I filmed him. We got some good fish. And we made a little video and we were blown away. I mean, the video was quite popular. It gives you a good idea of what that river has to offer. And then obviously we've all been hoping every year that we'd go back up there. But it's a finickety river. It's not as easy as one would think. I mean, our first trip up there, we caught loads of fish. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And then it was at a time when you had a week. You were given a whole week and you could do repeat trips. Maybe yep. I'm wrong, but you could. Yeah, I told yeah. the farmer I'm coming back. And I went and did a day trip and fished the same, the lower section, which Andre and I had fished and caught loads of fish. And it was like, you know, I'm talking about four days later, and I didn't see a single fish. And I was like, how is this even possible? You know, I caught a fish here, and I, I can't see any. And that water is so clear. You can see the bottom. It's not like they're hiding yep. at the bottom. And then I saw a f- tail of a fish sticking out of like a rocky outcrop. So these fish were just basically hiding. This one thought it was hiding. It was a bit of an ostrich. Had a head, mm-hmm. in the, head, head in the hole and its tail sticking out the back. So these fish obviously switch off at some point and just go and hide. And that was a, that was a big eye-opener for me because I blanked that day. And my mate that was with me was, thought I was fibbing when I said, we caught so many fish here last week. And <laughs> I managed to win a trip up there now. Um, this last season, yeah, with and I, I went up with Tudor, uh, yes, Caradoc yes. Davies, the um, editor of the Mission, yes. and it was just the two of us, and he'd never fished it, so it was a bit of a pilgrimage for him, and he was like very excited. I was excited too about doing it. We decided we we're going to make a video, hiked up to the cave, spent the night. Um, we'd seen fish on the way up, and then when we went upstream, we didn't see a fish, we didn't catch a fish, so we spent a whole day doing this. Yep. Which was, I mean, I was quite shocked. And we thought, okay, well, tomorrow we'll fish the lower section. And after not catching anything and thinking, okay, we're not going to make a video. We're not going to get anything out of this. And I was feeling quite bad because, you know, it was Tudor's first trip up there. We yeah. fished the lower section. And funnily enough, the fish were everywhere again. So Dude, it's I've caught a lot of fish on that lower section, eh? Yeah. No, there were loads of fish. But they weren't, I mean, we didn't see them the day before. We even fished. The section below the cave, you know, on the on the day that we hiked up, we hiked up, dropped our gear, and then when we went and fished up, we didn't see a fish. So obviously something, you know, turns them on or turns them off. And if you get it wrong, you're in for a bit of a blank session. But we were lucky. In the end, we caught fish. And, you know, fortunately, it was at the end of the trip, so it made up for the days before but it's so stunning up there that, you know, it's worth just going up there anyway. It kind of, just to put people in the picture, 
the JDTs reminds you of something out of a Tolkien novel. It's yeah. kind of turquoise water, these massive rocks, rocks the size of houses in the middle of the stream, uh, these beautiful trees that come over, these waterfalls, like falls. It's just, it's probably one of the most beautiful rivers I've ever seen in my entire life. And and it's got some huge fish in it too. I mean, there's this one pool. I looked down into the undercut and I saw a fish there. It must have been 24 inches long. Wow. Like, it, like uh, obviously we couldn't catch this fish. I mean, we tried everything. We threw streamers at it. We first nymphed it. We, this thing would not eat. And, but we caught a lot of other fish. I, I, I went with James Leach. We went for a, we actually went for a day. So he wins the week thing, but he doesn't have time. And he says to me, let's just go for a day because it was around Christmas. I, it was like three or four years ago, and it was on the 23rd of December. I'll never forget it. And I took my son with. And I remember I didn't even really fish. I'd, I just let my son fish. And he caught like something like 22 fish, you know, and he'd only wow. been fishing for a year. Yeah. Yeah, it's an it's an incredible river. I mean, I agree with you with everything you've said about it. It's it's unique, and I mean, the Cape streams are beautiful. I mean, you know, I occasionally guide on the streams, and you know, the international clients are blown away. They're like, this is so beautiful. I can't believe how beautiful this is. And I just yeah. think, imagine if we took those people up the JDT, what they think of that? Because it's just, as you say, it's it's tumbling water. I like to referred to it as that it's just always climbing over boulders and there's sections where it flows through just hard rock you know it's yeah. like channels of hard rock that it goes down and it does amaze me how trout manage to get up those sections and that river must come down when you know when it floods but yeah, yeah the beauty of that river is i mean uh, it's it's i find it very hard to describe okay i want to ask you another question sure if i had to say to you platon you are allowed six flies, okay? And six flies, you're only allowed six flies. And you need to be able to cover the majority of species you're likely to catch. I'm, I'm speaking saltwater as well. Okay. And I, and I said to you, if you don't catch a certain amount of fish within a year, I am going to shoot you and bury you. Okay. So you only have these six flies. What six flies would they be and why? Well, what's, what species are we talking about? I mean, we're okay, talking so trout. Trout. Okay. We're talking bass. We're okay. talking, say, basics like Garrick. And we're talking anything like bluegill, maybe oh. yellowfish. Grunter. Yep. Grunter. Like, like, you know, like the, the stuff you can find on foot, basically. I mean, for carp, obviously, I would use it. I would use a lalu bug, uh -huh. um, and I've actually found it to be quite a generic fly. I've caught yellowfish, love it. I mean, we had a, a session on the Orange River where, you know, I put I put one on the bottom of a crab fly because crabs were working at the time. It was when the orange was clear, and they were hammering this lalu bug instead of the crab, and so it became you know quite prolific for me um, to just keep using it. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. It's, you know, just I felt, okay, keep it on and see what happens. And I was testing it out, and that's what they were hammering. So it's quite a versatile fly. It'll catch, you know, tilapia. I've caught trout on it as well. So that would be, you know, my my go-to um, dragonfly nymph pattern. 
Um, mm -hmm. For dry fly, I can't say that I fish it all the time because I'm quite experimental, but a, a rab or a rab, as I sometimes pronounce it, um, would definitely be one of my favorite flies. I just absolutely love watching that fly drifting down towards me. Uh -huh. um, uh, obviously, a woolly bugger or something similar to that, it's quite a generic mm -hmm. pattern, works really well for um, smallmouth bass. Love them. You know, if you get it right, they, they really do like a smaller fly or smaller, darker fly in the right conditions. Um, and that would also be useful for trout, stillwater trout. Mm -hmm. uh, I would also go for something like a Clouser Minnow. Yeah. Just because of its versatility, I've caught carp on it, funnily enough. Yeah. Smallmouth bass, love them. I mean, they were designed for smallmouth bass. Mm -hmm. And they work so well in salt water. You know, I've, I mean, people are catching grunter, leopards, um, yeah. even cob on them. You know, I mean, that's one of the go-to patterns when we fish for cob. It's a really big sort of clausum. It is a clausum, you know. I mean, we like to call them DMAs sometimes, but it's a clausum, you know. And then obviously, you know, um, what other species are we thinking about? What I, I mean, another fly that I like to use, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it unique, but I, it's a pattern that I use when I fish for tiger fish a lot. It's called um, the bully beef, which mm -hmm. is a, um, it's a rabbit zonka um, hook, hook up alternative for tiger fish. Now, most it. people fish for tiger fish with clouser minnows. Uh -huh. I used to read about, what was his name again? The old tiger fishing guys. Malcolm Mankeys. Malcolm, Malcolm Mankeys used to fish something he called Malcolm's Rabbit, which was a Zonka strip, basically. Uh -huh. And I thought, okay, we've got to like adapt this pattern to swim hook up and keep it right, you know, get the balance right. So I tied some up for the for a trip to the Okavango, actually. Yeah. And there was a there was a guy, like a very well-known guy, who had two English clients staying in the same camp as us. And I remember I was like rigging up one day and he walked past me and saw this bunny blowing in the wind on my road and said, tigers don't eat bunny brew. And I was like, I was quite bleak because it was like my early days on the Akavang and I was like, oh my God, the guide said that they weren't work. And I tied quite a lot of them. But I started smashing fish on them. And that became my like go-to fly. And I was like, yeah. And you know, so that so that's become a, one of my go-to patterns for for tiger fish in Nembwe. Um, so I'm not sure what number are we on. <laughs> I think we are number five. But uh, but if you've one, got five, two, what three, I find amazing four, about five, all these flies yeah. is is that they're extremely simple, and that's so cool. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, obviously, a popper or a deer hair bug is something I love. Deer hair. Um, yeah. One of my favorite things is fishing for smallmouth bass or largemouth bass with a, a deer hair bug. And I've been tying some patterns as well for the surface cob in on the breeder um, using deer hair. There's just something about deer hair where, you know, it, it sits deeper in the water. Um, and I think when fish pick, pick it up, it's soft. So they hang on to it a bit longer than a hard popper. So some kind of deer hair surface pattern is definitely one of my favorites. Oh man, and they're yeah, fun to tie. I mean, deer deer hair has always fascinated me. The way that you know it flares out. Like I remember the first time seeing it's like, wow, this stuff is incredible. And then you trim it down, and it makes this like cork cork looking thing that floats like well. And I was wow, this is 
definitely something to get into. So I spent a lot of time tying with deer hair, and I use it quite a lot wherever I can. Fantastic. Dude, I love DA. I used to, as a kid, I used to do a lot of uh, DA work. I don't do it anymore because I, I don't do that kind of fishing a lot. But also, it's expensive, eh? I mean, from a South African perspective, to get decent DA, I mean, you, you, I don't know how many flies you tie with a patch, but I might get three out of there. Yeah, those patches are, you know, I look in the shops and you look at those patches and I go, okay, that's one fly. That's one big bass fly right there. And, you know, yeah. and then when, uh, you know, like Grunter, I mean, you've, you've, you've spoken to Leroy about Grunter and he's more into the subsurface grub Grunter fishing, which I tried for, I mean, honestly, like a decade and never got one. And it was incredibly frustrating. And then obviously this turd pattern came out, which was, a jointed fly with two hooks. So it's, you know, like a articulated streamer kind of thing, but yeah. with deer hair on both ends. Now tie one of those or tie four of those to take on a trip and you've used up quite a few patches. So it is yeah. terrible in that sense. But I think it was Explorer brought out these like long strip patches, which are about, I don't know, about a foot long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing deer hair. And that stuff is, you know, I mean, you can get a lot of flies out of that. So when I see that around, I just, buy whatever I can in various colors that works. But quality is also a big thing. I mean, something I've learned over the years is that your materials make a huge difference to what your flies look like. You know, I mean, I've got some pretty crap materials from the old days and, you know, you can see it. You tie a fly with that stuff and it just doesn't look as good. Yeah. And you, I mean, as you know, you're an expert on it. Um, materials make a huge difference to what your flies look like. You sometimes find materials in the weirdest places. I once found these lovely saltwater saddle hackles at a at a material shop, and they were long. They were like these hackles were super long, yeah. And and I just bought like half a meter of it, you know. Yeah, it was like in those strands. Yeah, I know exactly. Look, I'm a bit of a haberdashery nut, to be honest. Um, I think some people find it quite amusing, but you know, being so obsessed with fly tying and fly fishing, you know, if you're in the mall or, you know, when I'm abroad and my wife's like shopping or, you know, getting something for the kids or whatever, I'm just looking for haberdashery shops. And, you know, here in the Cape, we've got quite a few as well. And in there, as you say, hackles, I found some amazing hackles. And even those like craft shops, like bead shops, they have, yeah. I mean, I bought some marabou from those places, which you can't even buy in the shops. It's Dude, like there was this bridal shop. What was that? Bridal, bridal shop. shops. Perfect. Yeah. I, I look, a lot of the stuff you buy in fly shops is, you know, craft stuff that's just been put into a little packet and had its price tripled or quadrupled <laughs> or more. You know, I mean, I look at bead chain and I see what the prices of buying bead chain in a packet and I go like, Go to your local hardware store and you can find a bigger variety. But yeah. it's, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I love it. Like I go along Salt River, you know, main road uh, where there's a lot of those kind of haberdashery type shops. And as you say, those wedding shops are even better because they have a lot of flash. And you yeah. find amazing stuff like Mylar tubing, you know. I yeah. mean, you, I find some stuff which is as thick as my finger, you know. And okay. it makes beautiful heads for streamers and yeah. nice colors. It's hard to come by, but every now and then I find something. You, you, you can't find that stuff. If you, if you go to sh like fly fishing shops, it doesn't exist. You know, people see my flies and go, wow, where did you get that from? 
like some haberdashery shop in Salt River, you know, downtown Salt River. <laughs> if I wanted to pin a cop in the Berg River, what advice would you give me? Look, the 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 carp on the Berg River are incredibly finickety compared to carp in other places. From my experience, and from you know the the buddies that I fished with, who have fished for carp all over the place as well, um, they they they're particularly fussy and very spooky. So what you need to do is find feeding fish is your first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you can see them clearly, it's better. Mm-hmm. Move very very slowly so that they aren't alerted to you. Take your mm-hmm. time, pick your fish, and then try and get the fly as closely in front of its nose as possible. It's mm-hmm. quite a difficult feat because we often fish in moving water. So that means casting quite far ahead of them and getting your drift right and getting your fly to drop down in front of them and hopefully sit in front of them long enough for them to eat it before the current sweeps your fly away. Um, obviously, fish that are feeding in eddies and on the side are easier to target because you're not dealing with so much current. But the mm-hmm. key thing is to find them, find feeding fish, make sure they don't know that you're there, and to get the fly in front of their nose. Uh, there are different techniques. You know, obviously, you can cast right on top of them and plop it in their heads. Often that spooks them, so that's not too good. <laughs> and, nothing, <laughs> and they do take off. And another thing that's quite common is a thing called drag and drop, where you cast ahead of them and past them. And then you drag your fly so you, you can actually see it, and you drag it closer and closer, so it makes it a lot easier to place the fly and in drop front it, of their nose. And you drop yeah. it into the zone where they're like, okay, I got you. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, Americans use that technique quite a lot. I mean, it works here too. Um, I use it quite a lot. It depends on, you know, the fish, its location, how it's feeding. There's just various things that you, that you learn over time, you know. Um, one of the key mistakes people make is they, they cast a fish that they can see that aren't feeding. So often carp will like sit on the surface and sun themselves, and mm-hmm. people get very excited about those, and they'll fish to them. They do occasionally take a very slow dropped fly right in front of their nose, but usually they will just ignore it, and people cast and cast, eventually spook them, and then they start cruising around, and then they start fishing to these cruising, these cruising fish, which have already seen you, and are actually like trying to avoid you and you're like still hammering flies out at them, that just doesn't work. Um, and that, that's a key factor, I think, is finding fish that are feeding. And then obviously reading the fish because sometimes you can't see them clearly. You're just seeing shadows or you're seeing tails. That, will, you know, that gives them away. You often see their tail. Uh, mm-hmm. Those fish are hard to see. And you, know, you drop a fly close to them and they'll move over and eat it, but you won't notice. There's mm-hmm. certain telltale signs. You know, they have a, a specific way of tasting a fly where they, you know, they suck it up and then they take it into the back of their throat and they sort of chew on it and you see their lips moving. And that's a, a good sign that a fish has eaten your fly. And then you just, you know, do a, a slow strip to feel if you've got tension. If not, yeah. let it drop again. And sometimes the fish moves over and, you know, does follow it a bit, you know, like you would with any sight fish fish. But, yeah, that is he- the main thing is finding the feeding fish and just seeing them eat it. Have you ever caught these carp on the surface? I haven't. Um, They don't tend to come up to the surface. Occasionally we see a fish come up to the top, and we do wonder if they've eaten something off the top. A friend of mine did catch one on a sunken beetle once. He lost it, but he did hook it, which is quite a feat in itself. Uh, Landing them is is another thing. But no, I haven't. There are places where people do chum for them or in places where they will 
come up and feed like in the scum scum surface um you know in the eddies and in and slower pools but it's not common in in a lot of areas you'll find that in places where people visit like you know in Daldavi I know people do catch them quite regularly there on bread flies and things like that but those mm-hmm. are sort of semi tamed carp so they're not that spooky and they're expecting to get food from that source so a fly <laughs> that a fly that mimics bread will work so yeah so you'll hear of guys catching quite a few in that way but you know my thing is more tra- targeting you know fish that aren't eating on bread and aren't used to being fed and those are the tricky ones a while back on facebook i i saw you caught this lovely trout in one of the cape streams and you did it on an old fenwick glass rod i don't even think you were planning on really fishing seriously at the time tell us a bit about that that was an incredible fish. It's probably one of the highlights in my trout fishing um, experiences. A friend of mine invited me to go and camp with his two children on the uh, on the Mullinars or Small Blah, the low, low down, way below where we normally fish in the CPS waters. And I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if there would be trout up there. I didn't think so, or down there. Um, but obviously, I'm a keen smallmouth bass fisherman, so I thought I'm going to give it a go. It was spring. And I knew that the campsite was on the river. Uh, the river was, I mean, the section, uh, the section of the river, the, the campsite, lent towards the idea that this place always had water. So that got me excited because those lower sections do dry up quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I took my old Fenwick along and I took my kids' spinning rods along just in case, you know, that kind of thing. So it wasn't a fishing trip. But when we got there and I suddenly realized I had a, bit of a gap and some time to walk up the river um i pulled out my old fenwick but realized i didn't have my tippet with me and so i just used like a 10 pound tippet off my kids spinning rods <laughs> which eliminated using dry flies or anything like that because they just wouldn't fit through the holes so i put on a woolly but all trusted woolly bugger of mine with a tungsten head and i went upstream fished a bit never found anything but when i got back to camp um, the, the section of river there was really wide, and on the far bank was like this small rocky outcrop. And every mm-hmm. now and then, on the corner of my eye, I saw something happen there. It wasn't really a rise or a flash or something. There was activity. And my buddy that was with, with me, he's not a fisherman, also said he noticed something there. But the river was too wide to cast across with my Fenwick, and it was cold and high. So I left it. And then later on in the day, the river subsided a bit and it had warmed up quite a bit. So I thought, I'm going to go and try and see what this thing is. And I waded up to like above my waist. It was chilly as hell. And I cast across to swing the streamer across to him, thinking it was probably a bass. And I swung the streamer across and I got a bump and I saw a flash. So I knew something was there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the adrenaline started kicking in. So I made another very similar cast, let it sink a little bit deeper. And then this time I got smashed, smashed so hard that this fish just shot upstream jumping. Um, And what it did is it exposed its size and that just blew my mind. So I whooped with joy and all the kids came running down to the bank to watch. And they're all hollering every time it jumped, which is really exciting. Um, And it shot upstream and then it turned around and went downstream. And as as mentioned, the river was flowing fast. It pulled like crazy, went straight into the backing. And I was lucky enough that I had this like thick tippet on. If I had like 5X or anything smaller than that, I would have lost that fish for sure. It leapt and leapt. Kids were cheering and we got it to the bank. 
I managed to land it, and I was obviously blown away. Shouted for my friend to get a camera, and he came down, and all the kids gathered around and just admired this beautiful twenty-inch fish. Uh, we measured it because my net actually has a measuring; uh, uh, it has numbers on it, so I can see how big fish are. Mm-hmm. And it was a 20 inch, and we admired it. The little girl started crying because she thought we were going to kill it. But I explained to her that now we're going to let this fish go so that you know, live another day and make babies. And that, that just made a huge difference to her. She was overjoyed. We let the fish go, and everybody cheered. And it was just such an incredible highlight <laughs> you know, in that environment. <laughs> oh, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Listen, yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, okay. no, 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 go for it. No, no, go for no, no, it. no, 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 no I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say no, anything. No, no, you were, you were, Platon, say what you're going to say. No, I think one of the, I mean, uh, one of the great things was, was, you know, each child came down to touch the fish and stroke it, and the sun was shining. It just glowed. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. If you could change anything in fly fishing, what would it be? Hmm. I think the stigma around it is something I would like to change. You know, that sort mm-hmm. of elitist vibe that's there. And it, and it's not even, and I don't even mean it in a way of between fly fishing and conventional fishing. You know, I, I will fish conventional if, if, the, if the conditions are right for it. But you yeah. get a lot of purists out there, you know, the whole like only on fly, only on dry, you know, all this only stuff. You know, I mean, I have an element of that too myself. You know, like catching a grunt on a subsurface passion is a mission that I want to fulfill. Catching them mm-hmm. on the surface with turds is easy. But just that whole, like, I don't know, um, elitist side of it, I would really love to see that change in fly fishing and make it more accessible and, you know, allow people to fish for whatever they want in whichever way they want. You know, we have choices. Stick to your choice. You're allowed that, but don't condemn me for fishing in a certain way. Platon, thank you, man. Yes. That was so cool. A pleasure. It's absolutely been brilliant. Chatting.